Hi, it's Jen. Just a reminder that news is rapidly changing, and especially with elections, news moves fast. So things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. So be sure to get all the latest news on your local NPR station or visit npr.org. And of course, visit us at the1a.org for our latest conversations. And as always, thanks for listening. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's time for the News Roundup, so let's get into it. Election Day has come and gone, but the vote counting continues, and the fate of Congress is still very much up in the air. Some of our political leaders are thrilled. The American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. Others, not so much. Definitely not a Republican wave, that's for darn sure. So when it comes to the midterms, what do we know? What do we not know? And who might be sworn into office next January? To talk about it, I'm joined today by Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, always a pleasure. Great to be back with you. Jordan Fabian is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And Josh Meyer is the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Josh, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So we still do not know which party will control the Senate or the House. So, Anita, which states are still counting their ballots and which ones could make or break Congress for the Democrats? Well, we've got both House and Senate, so there are different things going on. Uh, We still have about 30 or so House districts that remain uncalled. Not all of those are really unknown, right? They're still counting ballots, but there's only about a dozen that are sort of close. It does uh, still favor the Republicans, but there's still a chance that Democrats can eke it out, uh, according to my colleagues. So we're still waiting on a variety of states in the Senate. Um, we're waiting on on these big states of Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Uh, technically, I believe Alaska is still out, but we know it's going to go to a Republican. So we're waiting on those three states. It's 49, 48 right now if you if you assume Alaska is going to a Republican. So we need two states to come in. Um, and we are expecting in the coming days for Arizona and Nevada to come in. And Georgia is going to a runoff once again. So that'll be in December. Now, Josh, Republicans were predicting a red wave for weeks before Election Day. You know, they they still look likely to control the House, but it's pretty clear that that red wave did not happen. Why not? Uh, you know, that's it, it, it's a very good question. There's people that are spending a lot of time trying to figure this out. I mean, one of the best things that I've seen about this is that it came down to the three Ds, uh, which is Dobbs, Doubters, and or Deniers, and Donald. <clears throat> so that's the you know obviously the uh, abortion rights issue. Uh, election deniers didn't do nearly as well as they thought they were going to do, and that's certainly that uh, former President Donald Trump thought they would do. Um, and then Trump himself, I think, proved to be very unpopular. I think there's a lot of people in the Republican Party that are looking at this as a wake-up call and saying it's time to distance themselves from from the former president um, and his kind of craziness. Um, and so, you know, I think those are those are some of the issues. I think young voters came out in force, uh, and that that wasn't expected or at least polled. Um, and you know, there's any number of issues depending on 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 the district too. But I think those are the three big ones. 
Uh, Charles tweets, here in Michigan, we're more shocked to see Dems take both legislative houses than to see them sweep the statewide races. You hadn't seen that predicted as much. That's true. In Florida, he says, it seems like a lot of what happened was because of their legislative maps. Why is redistricting not the main lens through which we're reflecting on through which we're reflecting on this election cycle. You know, Jordan, I don't know if you want to take that question. Um, And also just the fact that the results really have differed from state to state. It's kind of hard to say, you know, one unifying thing about what happened. That's right. If you look at the exit poll data, I mean, there's a lot of demographic stuff you can look at and try and draw conclusions about what the race might look like in 2024 or what were the takeaways of this race. But uh, the listener is right to point out a lot of these races, especially when you're talking about the House and state legislatures, are dependent on redistricting. A good example, I had one source point out to me that uh, the I think Democrats won over 50 percent of the vote in Wisconsin, but they only ended up with like 30% of legislature seats. And that's because of how the districts are drawn. So uh, look, uh, about a decade ago, you know, I covered President Obama. You know, he was very concerned about at the end of his presidency, how Republicans were very successful at the state level at redistricting. And so they tried to, Democrats tried to make up the ground there. But, you know, we're still seeing uh, parties, both parties try and rig the maps. You know, that's why in New York, you saw Republicans. Republicans, I think, make some gains because a Democratic map got thrown out. A judge drew a map that was more even-handed, and you saw Republicans really make some gains there. You know, and this is something, of course, I cover reproductive rights policy for NPR. This is something that my sources have pointed out to me, looking at the results of some of these ballot measures in places like Kentucky this week and in Kansas in August, very red states where where voters have you know rejected efforts to restrict abortion rights. Um, abortion rights groups argue that that is a sign that in part because of gerrymandering, um, the, the sentiment of the voters is out of step with the level of restrictions their lawmakers are passing. So, um, you know, to, to that same point, you know, Anita, one thing we can safely say is that whoever takes Congress will be leading it with a very tight majority. So what will that mean for things getting done as we move forward here? Well, it's going to be very difficult regardless. Um, So if you look at, you know, let's just assume for, for the sake of argument here that Republicans take over. You've got divided government with the White House and Congress, right? So that's going to be very difficult uh, for them to get things done and and for President Biden's agenda to move forward, his nominees to move forward in the Senate, of course, if if Republicans take over. If uh, Democrats, uh, you know, keep one chamber, which, you know, is possible with the Senate, as we talked about, they're going to be divided in Congress. It's going to be very difficult for them to to move forward on really anything. I mean, when you just go straight back to the policies, they disagree, the two parties, on what should be done. So it's not a question of, you know, uh, how can we compromise? They just have a different philosophy on what needs to be done. Of course, they'll need to do certain things, fund the government, other things to keep things moving forward. And that's going to be really, really tough. It's uh, my colleagues on Capitol Hill uh, today are are looking at sort of how can what are they even going to do in this lame duck Congress? They don't even know because they don't know, you know sort of what January looks like and what they want to do in December. So they're they're really in limbo right now. Josh, what lessons will each of the parties take away from these results? I'll, I'll ask you to start maybe with the GOP. What what might they be learning from these midterms? Um, well, I think the biggest thing they're learning is is uh, not to put all their eggs in the Trump basket. I mean, I think that there was a lot of people within the Republican Party that that really just thought that there was going to be this huge red wave that people were going to be, um, you know, following Donald Trump's 
lead and voting for people like, you know, um, uh, you know, it, some of his candidates throughout the country, um, you know, voting for Herschel Walker, for instance, or Doug Fabiano in Pennsylvania. And I think that they're really starting to see that that's not going to work and that people are, you know, tired of that. Um, Trump this morning, of, of course, had a complete meltdown on, on Truth Social. So I think that's one of the big takeaways. I think that they need to really also uh, take seriously things like the Dobbs decision and whether or not people are going to put up with uh, this intrusion on their, you know, their personal liberties and, 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 and listen to pro-choice people. I think that they did lose a lot of women in the suburbs because of that. I think that uh, they're, they're, like I said before, they're really uh, doing um, uh, sort of, uh, they're really undermining their, their vote with, uh, with young voters. Um, and I think that they really need to reassess that and, and figure out what kind of message they need to send going forward rather than just criticizing Biden. Jordan, you cover the White House, you cover President Biden. What, what about Democratic leadership? What are they taking away? Well, there was a lot of crowing from President Biden and his White House aides this week that this red wave didn't materialize. We heard the president get up at his press conference the other day and say, the press and pundits were all wrong. Uh, this was not the red wave. You know, we did better than any president has in a first midterm election in decades. And that's true. However, he's still looking at a very different political reality over the next two years with Republicans expected to win the House. So he's looking at investigations, possible impeachment of himself or his cabinet secretaries. You know, those investigations can touch on his personal life, like his son, Hunter Biden. And so, you know, there's, I think, confidence that in the White House that the Republicans might overreach. But at the same time, that means his President Biden's agenda is pretty much done. So uh, he's going to have to figure out a way to still make the case to Americans if he's as he's thinking about whether to run for president again, why they should put him in the Oval Office again for another four years. Yeah, we shouldn't overstate it. I mean, this is this is a better than expected showing for Democrats, but still many challenges for the president. Uh, listener John tweets, as a Kentuckian, I'm extraordinarily excited to see the abortion ballot measure fail. As someone who lives here, I can see that most Republicans don't mind abortion. It's the big guys that do. And then C-word emails, I could see a lot of blame for the Republicans below expected results directed toward Donald Trump. But doesn't Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito bear as much or more responsibility for so many votes going toward the Democratic Party? And and I'm not sure if I would just focus on, on Justice Alito, maybe maybe the majority in general. Anita, I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing some Republicans have heard, I've heard them say exactly that, that they have two people to blame. And they actually did single out uh, Justice Alito and, and Donald Trump, uh, obviously for abortion, and then also Donald Trump for, you know, basically choosing candidates um, that didn't fare well, that maybe did well in the primaries, but not well in the general election. So I think uh, Republicans, if you talk to them, look at both of those things and those men and kind of say, if only it had been something different. We're discussing more of this week's headlines. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that 
basically you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Let's get back to the news roundup. You know, Josh, earlier you mentioned the three Ds that played a big role in the outcome of these midterms. You said Donald, Dobbs, and deniers. And I want to talk about that last one. Heading into the midterms, 60% of Americans had an election denier on their ballot. And while most of them did not win, it was not a complete washout for those deniers. So, So, Josh, how did deniers do overall? And what does that say about the mindset of the electorate? You know, I I mean, uh, Democrats won races for top election posts in several political battlegrounds where their Republican rivals had cast doubt on the 2020 contest and signaled their desire to to overhaul voting systems. But they, you know, but the election deniers did win in in some pretty big states and and local races and governorships. Um, And, you know, the the vote is still being counted in places like Arizona, where you have, you know, election deniers who base their whole candidacy on this. So, you know, it's it's I think it's 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 a recipe for uh, some real trouble. I think we're in for some real civil discord here. And I think that, you know, a lot of the candidates that said, like Carrie Lake said, uh, you know, I'm not going to accept the results of the uh, uh, the election unless I win. Um, you know, that's a big problem going forward. I do think, though, that because some of them lost in some high profile races, it's going to be harder for these people to just claim, you know, that things were rigged because they lost, but we'll have to see what happened. I think that there's uh, there is, though, a, a post-midterm meltdown that's begun uh, within the GOP uh, where, where they're saying, if we can't win under these circumstances, when can we win? And I think there's a lot of consideration being given to whether the election denial uh, issue is really one that's uh, holding water with, with voters. I and mean, it could impact whether McCarthy stays on as the, as the Speaker of the House if they flip the House, which it's likely they're going to do, and even McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader. So um, it, it sort of has ramifications across the board. And Josh, do you have a feel yet for in the places where election deniers won? Did they win because they were running on that platform or did they win in spite of it? Were voters voting for them for some other reason, you know, just party loyalty, for example? You know, I think pollsters are still looking at that, but I do think that there's places, you know, like Kerry Lake is just a good example, I think, where, um, you know, these states are so pro-Trump and, and so, you know, blood red states, I think, that um, that it was part and parcel of what they ran on. So I think you can't discount the fact that, you know, election deniers um, and election denialism writ large is a factor. I mean, if you poll uh, Republicans, I don't know what the latest, uh, you know, percentage is, but, you know, Republican voters and Republican lawmakers you know, the, the percentage of them that say that the election was stolen from Donald Trump is is frighteningly huge, even though there's been tons of evidence, lawsuits, uh, judicial rulings, investigations that have proven to the contrary. Um, you know, it's unfortunately a, a sort of a huge disinformation campaign that has taken root and is going to be a problem going forward. I mean, it's like every candidate now who is a Republican who loses or thinks they're going to lose just says, oh, it was rigged. I'm I'm not going to accept the result. And that's really bad for democracy. You know, Jordan, exit polling has begun to give us a sense of who cast their ballot this year and why. What have you been seeing there? What key groups came out to vote and how did they shift the results? 
So we saw, as Josh pointed out earlier, young people uh, vote in larger numbers than they have in the past. Take a step back for a second. Before 2018, your midterms were were pretty low turnout elections, and and the people who did turn out were you know older people, uh, you know a more Republican electorate, you know whiter population. But we, we base saw, voters very often. Yeah, exactly, base voters. So, uh, but we've seen that flip in 2018, the first midterm under Donald Trump, and we saw that trend continue this year with a higher turnout election. So again, like young people, a group that typically wouldn't turn out turned out in big numbers, um, you know, like women, Hispanic voters all turned out in, in larger than expected numbers. Uh, it, it cut different ways, though, because you saw on a national level, Republicans eat into, for example, like women in the suburbs, a group that propelled Joe Biden to the White House, Hispanic voters. But then you, we talked about earlier looking at the districts. If you look at key districts, that didn't necessarily propel Republican candidates. In fact, there's those three South test uh, Texas House districts that Republicans were really looking at to test this notion that you know, their gains among Hispanic voters were going to re- really help them win, but they only ended up winning one of the three. And then if you look at Pennsylvania, for example, you know Republicans making inroads there, maybe among women and suburban voters, but you look at the exit polls again and what issues were important, abortion was the number one most important issue for voters in Pennsylvania over inflation and the economy. And so the, among those voters, they turned out in droves for Democrats. And so, again, it's very interesting to look at this state by state. I think a lot of political scientists and political operators are going to be looking at this election for a long time because there's some really interesting results in there. Right. Everybody thought going into the election that inflation was going to be number one. Yep. It was for some people, but not at all across the board. You know, Josh, you cover domestic security. You've been following some foreign groups that at least tried to influence the outcome of this election. Did we see a lot of foreign interference? You know, that that's something that's still being determined, I think. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, I wrote a story about this a couple of weeks ago about how China has sort of taken a page from the Russian playbook and that they were trying to influence the election. In- interestingly enough, though, what they're trying to do is, is basically undermine the credibility of the whole d- uh, process of the elections, of democratic institutions in general, and, and the Russians, too, are meddling in the election and the Iranians. But I don't think you know, talking to a bunch of people at Homeland Security um, and elsewhere, that they really made a difference here. I think one of the big concerns, though, is uh, what one of the um, real smart cybersecurity officials described to me as cognitive hacks. And what that is, is them sort of leveraging the fissures within, you know, uh, American voters, uh, sowing discord with people, pitting people against each other, and really, you know, um, trying to leverage uh, the chatter out there that there were rigged elections or that it was unfair. I mean, Republicans from Trump uh, on down to a lot of the candidates are already saying that, that the elections were rigged or there was cheating going on. And you have to really be on the lookout for Russian operatives, Chinese and others who pretend, you know, they set up fake accounts and say that they're, you know, Joe from Texas or something. Uh, and them really trying to um, magnify those those uh, claims. And that's something that it's hard for, for authorities to quantify. But I do think that that's happening already and that it's going to happen even more. So a lot of it is just a sort of disinformation campaign. And we really have to look, you know, be careful of that. Going back to the exit polls for a moment, um, Jordan mentioned something a moment ago that this was, this, I think, the second highest number of young voters we've seen in the last 30 years. Anita, how did young people affect the vote and what was motivating them to turn out, especially in these unusual numbers, for a midterm? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different issues. We we kind of always look at these elections and think there's sort of one thing, but I think if you talk to uh, young people, there's probably lots of different issues, right? The climate's always a big issue, guns. Um, obviously, uh, in this case, the Dobbs decision, abortion, w- was probably a, a big issue as well. I mean, I think one of the things that I, and of course, you, you cover this, so you would know, but I think one of the things that really struck me was you had mentioned before how we went into this election really focused on inflation. We kept hearing about these prices going up and that people were really focused on it. And they were, but we had also heard that sort of the energy around the decision, the Supreme Court decision, while that got people to uh, register to vote, uh, that after some months that it, that had kind of dissipated, right? That energy had kind of gone away. But actually what, what we've seen, though, is that it didn't really, right? It was still one of the top issues, the top issue in some places, the second issue in other places. And I think that's something that the polls really got wrong close to the election, is that it was really focused on the uh, on inflation and President Biden's approval rating. And in fact, abortion remained one of those key issues, you know, both for young voters but also for women and and, uh, and other folks. And, and that was one of the issues that really drove people to come out. Jordan, and another thing you mentioned from the exit polls is um, diverse voters. And, you know, the Republican Party fielded 67 non-white candidates this year. They seem to be really making a push in that direction. How did they do with voters of color? If you look at compared to 2018, they did better uh, across the board. Their biggest gain was actually among uh, Latino men. Uh, I, I think they won. I, I think I might be a little bit off here, but they won around two thirds. Or so de- Democrats won around two thirds of them in 2018. This time it was only 55 percent nationwide. That's a huge gain for Republicans. They also made gains among Latino women. So looking forward to 2024, again, you know, a long time from now, it will depend on the candidates. But that's something for Democrats to really pay attention to because that, you know, Latinos, uh, black voters, those are groups they need to turn out in large numbers and to win by large margins in order to win. It's a key part of their base. And so if they're not paying attention uh, to those trends, they have a big problem. And so uh, I would imagine that a lot of you know, smart people within the Democratic Party are going to be taking a look at that and trying to figure out what do we need to do differently over the next two years to not lose those gains. And also, you know, suburban voters as well. You know, Republicans made inroads there, um, believe that uh, they got those down. Republicans got those down to even. So, again, those groups are the groups that propelled Joe Biden to the White House. If Joe Biden runs again, he's got to have those groups in this corner, and they better be thinking long and hard how to keep them there. Just quickly, Jordan, do we have a sense of what issues were pushing those voters toward Republicans who traditionally would have voted more Democratic? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we, t- we just talked a lot about Dobbs and, and about these other issues, Donald Trump. Those pushed voters toward Democrats and away from Republicans. But still, inflation, uh, the president's low approval ratings, those still drove voters toward Republicans. Uh, you know, you, you had about so a third of voters w- wanting to take it out on Joe Biden, uh, and that, that's only who th- those who said to you know ex- exit pollsters. M- many more may have believed that too. So um, you know Joe Biden's got to lift his numbers up in order to prevent that erosion. 
Former President Donald Trump is moving ahead with plans to announce his 2024 presidential bid as early as next Tuesday, despite his circle's advice to delay his speech. According to The Washington Post, this advice came after a disappointing showing from some Trump-backed candidates and the landslide victory of his potential GOP rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So, Josh, give us an overview. How have Trump-backed candidates fared so far in these midterms? You know, I think that some of them have won, uh, but he's had a lot of really high-profile losses here. I mean, you had Herschel Walker was probably one of the biggest candidates that he lent his credibility to. And if you remember, um, the last time around in in, um, 2020, uh, he threw his support behind some candidates only after it appeared that it was clear that they were going to win. But in this case, he he went out on a limb. He handpicked a lot of these candidates, including Walker. Um, and they lost. And he it was especially upset, uh, Trump was, um, that, you know, uh, Mehmet Oz lost in Pennsylvania to John Fetterman, um, you know, that Doug Mastriano lost the, uh, the gubernatorial race um, uh, in Pennsylvania as well. So there's a lot of high profile ones that he lost. And I think that's what people are focusing on. And I think, you know, people are, you know, when you lose the New York Post, when, when Trump has lost his favorite media outlet of all time, and the New York Post has a headline on the front page that uh, says Trumpy Dumpty, and Don, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall, can all the GOP's men put the party back together again? That's saying a lot. And I think that that really sort of encapsulates where things are going now, where people are really... Uh, you know, questioning uh, Trump's judgment and, and, and saying that his choice of candidates was more about him than it was about how to help the Republican Party or help, how to help the country. So I think that, you know, uh, overall, he's, he's a big loser in this, and so are the candidates that he was supporting. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis emerging again as a winner in the GOP. He easily won re-election. There's speculation he'll be a top contender for the Republican nomination in 2024. Anita, how does that factor into the timing of Trump's announcement that he may be running again? Yeah, you're already seeing President Trump sort of lash out at Ron DeSantis. Of course, they had been close in the past. A lot of people uh, in Florida, including Ron DeSantis, had basically said that he won that first election for governor because of Donald Trump's endorsement. Um, And so here we are four years later, and it's a completely different story. I mean, Ron DeSantis was always expected to win, or at least in recent months, but the margin was just startling, even for Florida, where I used to live. I mean, we used to call it a swing state, but it's it was nearly 20 points, um, which is just just really crushing. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the inroads in uh, certain communities of color. Uh, he was the first Republican to win Miami-Dade County in 20 years since Jeb Bush. So he's coming at this with this supermajority in the legislature. He's going to move ahead. And here's Donald Trump sort of looking around at uh, who who his potential rivals are. If you look at some of the polls, Ron DeSantis, of of course, is not right up there with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is still sort of the favored person in the Republican Party for the nomination on, on these early polls. But you see Ron DeSantis gaining um, in those polls. And so he is looking around and, and, and you know, by all accounts, talking to some people that he thinks he, he needs to get out there 
early. You are correct, though. A lot of aides are saying it's too early. Wait till the Georgia runoff in December. Wait and see what happens. I mean, Donald Trump wanted to announce or was thinking of announcing uh, soon here because he thought he would have all these victories from this election and that he could sort of say, look, look what I did for this election. Look look what I did for the party. Um, And now he's going to come out and uh, announce. And that's simply not the case. Um, all accounts are that he's still planning on doing this, but uh, Jordan and I both know after covering Donald Trump for four years, you never know what's going to happen. He could change his mind 10 times before before that announcement. So we may see him announce uh, as soon as next week. We may not. Questions also swirling about President Biden's plans. Of course, he's he's feeling stronger than expected after these midterms. When asked about whether he'd make a call about running for a second term, here's what he said on Wednesday. I hope Jill and I get a little time to actually sneak away for a week around between Christmas and Thanksgiving. (laughs) And my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. Jordan, have the midterms boosted his chances? I think they've quelled a lot of talk that may have happened if there was a red wave about his age and fitness and whether he's the best person to lead the Democratic Party. But those questions are going to crop up again. And so as him and his aides think about this for the next few months, I think all of those questions are going to be on their minds. We'll have more to say about all of that and much more when we come back in just a moment. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I want to dig now into some key congressional races and meet a few of our newest members of Congress. Republican J.D. Vance will be the newest senator from Ohio. We've been given an opportunity to do something, and that's to govern. And to govern to make the lives of the people of Ohio better, that's exactly what I aim to do. And because of you, I get a chance to do it. And Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin won his bid for re-election, but Democrat John Fetterman was able to flip Pennsylvania's Senate seat, and Democrat Mark Kelly of Arizona is leading in his Senate race there, although it still hasn't been called. On that note, uh, Kenrick emails us, putting aside Herschel Walker's character issues, how is a guy with zero governing experience, even nominated or worse, making the Georgia Senate race so close? Lots of things to talk about. Anita, I'm going to start with you. What's your takeaway from who won Senate seats? And what does it say that the Senate appears to be splitting down the middle yet again? Yeah, I think that just the country is divided. The states are divided as we're seeing that. You know, just to the person who wrote in, I would say that Donald Trump, he wasn't the only one. There's been others, but he really set this in motion where you don't have to have uh, experience. You don't have to have been an elected official and you can you can run for statewide or even federal office and, and possibly win. Um, you know, I think it's really different all over the place, right? I mean, you've mentioned a few different states, and I don't know that, I mean, everything we've been talking about this hour, it's hard to say exactly why, uh, what we should take from the whole nation. I think that it's it's been different in each different state. So you mentioned Pennsylvania. I'll focus on that one. That was such a huge, huge race for both parties. The Republicans really thought they could eke that out. Um, you know, Dr. Oz, that's a... a, a an, a person that was endorsed by President Trump who did not make it, and Republicans really thought they would would um, make some inroads there. And it's it's interesting because both of those candidates, Democrats and Republicans, were considered sort of weak candidates. Um, you know, some people, Republicans saying to themselves, 
we couldn't even beat John Fetterman in, in Pennsylvania. How are we gonna how are we gonna do this? Because he was considered a weak candidate. So we're seeing different things in different places, but I, I think you should look to Donald Trump to see which of those people that he endorsed because some of those people in these key states simply aren't doing well. Yeah, on that note, uh, back to Georgia, which one of our listeners mentioned. Georgia's U.S. Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is going to a runoff election that'll be held on December 6th, which means that neither candidate won more than half of the vote. Josh, what kind of turnout could we see for this runoff? Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, you're already seeing like a dust cloud on the horizon of people heading to Georgia, not just reporters. Uh, but fundraisers, uh, people going canvassers for both parties. Um, you know, I think um, Walker and his, uh, you know, uh, you know, people supporting him claim that he he has already raised three million dollars just in the last couple of days for this. I think Warnock is fundraising too. Um, but you know, it's it it's going to be like an amazing battleground state. I think that there's some other states that will help determine how important that is that are still being counted. Um, you know, uh, I think Arizona is one of them. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, this is not the first time this has happened, but all eyes are going to be on Georgia. It's going to be a month where there's going to be incredible campaigning going on. I think that there's going to be concern that Trump might muddy up the message by declaring for, you know, his candidacy before this is over. Um, but I do think that it's, you know, it, it's going to be in play for, for four weeks. I think there's going to be a lot of people trying to dig up more um, information, opposition research on Walker about his personal life, um, uh, his fit, fitness to govern, uh, and so on. But, you know, hopefully it won't get too ugly and that they'll focus on kitchen table issues. Um, you know, one thing I was going to mention, though, too, is, is you know, um, J.D. Vance's victory in Ohio was, was surprising him. And I think he won by even more than pollsters thought he was going to. And this is a guy who has zero experience except writing books. His message was all over the map during the campaign. He was up and down. Um, and yet he beat Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, who was seen as a pretty strong candidate and somebody that should have been able to get his message through to voters. Which I think goes to Anita's point a moment ago that no experience is necessary and sort of star power is power these days. I want to turn now to governor's races. Here's Democratic incumbent Laura Kelly after winning her re-election bid in Kansas. In Kansas, we've always valued character and hard work over political party or ideology. Kansans want you to know, want to know who you'll work with, not who you'll work against. That sound comes to us courtesy of Rose Conlon with our Remaking America partner station, KMUW. You know, Jordan, incumbent governors did very well overall this election, but were there any surprises? So Ron DeSantis is rightfully getting a lot of attention for the margin of his victory in Florida. But if you look across the country to Colorado, Jared Polis, uh, the Democratic governor there, won by an equal amount of equally, but like won by a huge margin as well. And I think he really kind of created maybe a roadmap for Democrats running nationwide where he, he ran this kind of moderate, uh, you know, pro-business, you know, sort of moderate on the pandemic campaign and, and sort of just focused on kitchen table issues. And that turned out to be really effective um, in a state that was purple to red not too long ago. Um, and if you look also at, I think, Michigan and Pennsylvania, um, you know, Josh Shapiro and Gretchen Whitmer ran very strong campaigns. Uh, and also in those states, Democrats uh, took control of the state legislature. And so uh, that's that's uh, developments that 
haven't really been uh, talked about as much as the national results, but are going to be really significant for you know election denial, abortion, all these issues we've been talking about. A lot of that it's decided at the state level, and, and Democrats in those two states that are going to be you know key battleground states in 2024 really made some significant gains. We're hearing from some of our listeners. James emails, why is it taking so long to count the votes in Arizona and Nevada? I, well, I think they're they're close. And, uh, you know, elec- in these days of election security being a concern, everyone wants to count the votes carefully. A member of our 1A text club writes, polls are no longer an accurate tool. People screen calls, so polls do not reach a good sample. People also intentionally misled, intentionally mislead when answering poll questions. Stop reporting on poll info. And Marguerite writes, perhaps it is time to stop paying attention to polls. Once again, pollsters were wrong about an election. Far too much weight is given to this industry. Uh, Anita, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good point. It's it's uh, the media still does write about all these polls. We have our own polls, um, and and yet we still kind of all write about it. And yes, they are correct that we've seen this uh, the polls be wrong. Um, you know, obviously, uh, famously in 2016, you know how most people felt that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and and she did not. So. Uh, you know, it's a tough thing. It's the way that it's been covered for a long time. There's a big, huge industry in polling. Um, and every year or every cycle, we hear the pollsters explain why things have gotten better. And they were off. We did talk about this earlier, how, um, you know, not only on what was going to happen, but even on the issues that mattered, right? I mean, we, as I mentioned earlier, that there were a lot of polls that said abortion wasn't what it was six months ago or right after the Supreme Court decision. And and we saw that uh, it was still a major factor. So I do think that, uh, you know, I understand where the listeners are coming from. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. This is sort of the way that politics works and that people do look at the horse race and they do look at these polls. Anita, a brief follow-up to that. You know, there doesn't tend to be as much polling on ballot measures, but voters weighed in on more than 100 of those across the country. Abortion was a key issue. It came up in five states and voters largely came out in support of abortion rights, as we've mentioned. Anita, are there other ballot measures that, that stand out to you as especially significant this year? Yeah, I mean, definitely abortion, I would say, was was the big one. Um, also, there were um, a number of uh, ballot measures dealing with marijuana, um, and I think they were sort of split. Um, my colleagues had an interesting uh, take on the marijuana ones that said basically more than 150 fil- 155 million Americans now live in a state with uh, legal marijuana. So Maryland, Missouri passed legislation or passed uh, legalization referendums. Um, so there are now 21 states where anyone at least 21 years or older um, will be able to legally uh, possess marijuana. Uh, didn't pass everywhere. Voters in Arkansas, North Dakota, South Dakota all rejected recreational legalization. Uh, but it, it, it was mixed. But we as a country are getting closer to that place. Now we're Uh, We're at 21 states, so that's quite a lot. Moving in that direction. Let's wrap up by stepping away from politics and checking in on Silicon Valley. Nothing to talk about there, right? (laughs) Elon Musk's reign at Twitter is continuing to bring a healthy dose of chaos to the platform. His plan to charge about $8 a month for verification rolled out this week. Jordan, Twitter Blue has arrived. Uh, How's it working? Not great. 
to put it lightly. But I mean, you look at what's happened over the past few days. Uh, you know, I think all of us on this uh, discussion right now we probably use Twitter more than the average American. Probably but more than we should. Way, way more than we should. But uh, I mean, if you look at the chaos right now on the platform, I mean, you have people pay, par- running parody accounts paying for verification and then tweeting out, like, for example, there was a parody account uh, linked to Eli Lilly that said, free insulin. The uh, pharmaceutical the, the, company, yep, right? The, yeah, the pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly. There was a parody account, I think, today or yesterday uh, of Carrie Lake conceding the gubernatorial race. To be clear to all the listeners, that has not happened. Neither of those things happened. Yes, <laughs> the, 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 both those things aren't true. But this is a, just a small slice of the uh, you know misinformation, just, just fake news that's been put out there by verified accounts. And uh, I mean, can you imagine if he did this before the election and the chaos it would have unleashed? I mean, it's already chaotic. And and what it really points to is, you know, Elon Musk has taken on a ton of debt to to, to overpay essentially for Twitter, and now he needs to find a way to make money quickly uh, to satisfy those creditors. And one of these ideas was Twitter Blue, making users pay eight dollars for this, but. Uh, at the same time, he may be taking in more revenue. I don't know how many people are paying for this, but he's really uh, kind of destroying the platform. And so uh, what is the long-term cost of trying to squeeze every dollar out of the platform in in the short term? Uh, it, It remains to be seen, but so far the results have not been good. Right. And on Thursday, Musk reportedly told Twitter employees the company could go bankrupt as several more members of senior leadership left. You know, Josh, is Twitter imploding? Is this the end of Twitter? Uh, Well, that's a two-part question. Yes, it's imploding, uh, Sarah. Uh, I don't know if it's the end of Twitter. I've started looking for alternatives like Mastodon, and none of them really come close. If you figure Um, out how to use it, please let me know. (laughs) Yeah, and and I'm not going to go to Parler. But, you know, I mean, before he actually, you know, finished the purchase, I was actually thinking that he's trying to screw this up so badly that he wanted the federal government to step in and prevent him as a national security threat from taking over. That would sort of, you know, allow him to sort of abdicate the deal and not have to go through with it. I mean, it was almost like he's intentionally trying to ruin it. Um, But now that he's, you know, bought and paid for it, I think, you know, he's in real trouble. I think, you know, his... Uh, you know, chief information security officer left, uh, a very much beloved, um, another person who was head of security left, uh, chief compliance officer left. Um, I mean, it's going downhill really fast. And I think, you know, there's been trouble with Twitter since the 2016 election when the Russians did use it as an influence platform. But, you know, I do think that people kind of look at Twitter as a as a public trust of sorts. And so they're getting really um, taking it personal when when Musk is trying to monetize it and, and charge for the blue check and other things. So you're already seeing, I think it's more than a million people have left the platform. And I think it's going to just keep going. Um, and he's also picking a fight with the FTC, which is never a good idea. So we'll have to just see what happens. But it's trending in the wrong direction uh, by any metric you want to look at. Before we go in just a couple minutes, I want to quickly, you know, as long as we're talking about social media sites that are not what they used to be, uh, Wednesday, the company behind Facebook told employees it plans to lay off 13% of its workforce, more than 11,000 people. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg addressed employees in this video sent to NBC News by an affected employee. I want to say, you know, up front uh, that I take full responsibility for this decision. Um, you know, I'm the founder and CEO. I'm uh, responsible for for the health of our our company, um, for our direction, um, and for for deciding you know, how we execute that, including things like this. And this was ultimately my call. 
Um, and it was, it was, you know, one of the hardest calls that I've, I've had to make in, in, in the 18 years of running the company. Anita, we've got 30 seconds or so, but what is behind these layoffs? Yeah, I mean, the, the company's just really struggled financially this year. It's trying to move into sort of a new business, and it's dealing with the economic slowdown because of the you know, because of the pandemic and a decline in digital advertising, um, he attributed the cuts to just growing too quickly during the pandemic. He kept thinking it would move forward and that growth would continue, but it but it simply did not. Anita Kumar is senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Jordan Fabian is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. And Josh Meyer is the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's time for the international edition of the News Roundup. Ukrainian forces have retaken a key port city from Russia. President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping will meet to discuss ongoing tensions in Taiwan. And the globe reacts to the changing political tides in the U.S. after Tuesday's midterms. All of that and your questions on the international edition of the Friday News Roundup. And joining us is Indira Lakshmanan, former senior executive editor at National Geographic. Indira, welcome back. Hi, Sarah. Also with us is Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Idris, always good to have you. Thanks for having me. And Anne-Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg News. Anne-Marie, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start where a lot of Fridays have started before, which is in Ukraine. The Kremlin announced that Russian forces are moving out of the strategic port city of Kherson. It's the only major Ukrainian city Russia has captured since the start of the war in February. And on Friday, Ukraine said its forces entered the city. Indira, what makes this victory so significant for the Ukrainian army as they continue to their counteroffensive against Russia? And why is President Zelensky urging some caution? Well, it's incredibly surprising because Kherson is the one regional capital um, in Ukraine that Russia had actually seized. Uh, remember, these are the areas where not long after the invasion of Ukraine earlier this year in February, um, Russia seized Kherson and was occupying it. It was one of the areas that just in September, Vladimir Putin said, this is now part of Russia and it will always be part of Russia. So to go from saying this is part of our territory to the Russians voluntarily withdrawing and saying that they had to do so to preserve lives of their soldiers was really shocking. And it's understandable that the Ukrainian government has been suspicious and has worried about whether this might be a trap. Um, There's certainly been talk about how the Russians would have been mining um, the land as they retreat to the east bank of the Dnipro River. Um, It does seem as if the Russians have withdrawn, even though it seemed impossible that they would be able to do that so quickly with 40,000 soldiers. So I think the question is, yes, the Ukrainian flag is being raised atop Kherson city administration buildings. Um, At the same time, I think the Ukrainians are wondering why. Why would the Russians withdraw? from this one important city that they were holding um, to the other side. They've been seen building trenches on the east side of the Dnipro, which looks like settling in for the winter and holding their positions. 
So, Idris, how will Russia's military strategy need to change because they no longer have access to this strategic port? Yeah. I mean, uh, Kherson was sort of an interesting city because, um, you know, symbolically it's very important. And like you said, it's the only provincial capital they actually held. But from a military and sort of tactical point of view, there were some real questions about why it was happening at all, because um, there were issues that the Russians were having in resupplying, um, not just troops with food and, and clothes as winter came in, but also equipment. And so from a military and tactical standpoint, I think they had pretty much given up on moving towards Odessa from Kherson. And so this actually allows them to move back east of the Dnipro River and fortify those positions. So it doesn't really change their strategy on in, 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 in the broader scheme because as winter is approaching, I think we're going to see both sides really dig in not make any advances and you know with the river potentially being frozen over it really would have been tough to resupply the troops in Kherson. Hmm. Anne-Marie, senior U.S. officials have been calling on Ukraine to signal that they're open to negotiating a peace deal with Russia. How have Ukrainian officials responded and also what do you make of the timing of this news? Well, the timing is interesting because it also comes on the heels of, of course, what we're talking about, which is the Russian forces pulling back from Kherson, the strategic location for Russia. And interesting, I was at the Biden press conference this week where he was asked about this, and he said it's interesting they did it now because we knew they were going to do that for some time. So maybe the United States sees that now is a formidable time to open up the dialogue. Zelensky, in his remarks this week, he wants it to be on Ukrainian terms. And he says he's open to, quote, genuine peace negotiations. The biggest thing for Ukraine is that they want to restore territorial integrity. Whether or not Russia is going to be willing to do that remains the biggest question, and they likely won't. Because for Ukraine, territorial integrity also includes Crimea, which was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. Right. Indira, in what context might President Zelensky be open to meeting with Kremlin leadership about this? Well, I mean, one important thing is that um, Zelensky has removed as one of his conditions for talks that it wouldn't be while Putin is the leader of Russia. He had previously said he'd only be willing to talk to Russia um, if there is a future post-Putin leader. He's now removed that from his list. Um, But as as Anne-Marie was saying, he is not willing to give up the territorial integrity of of Ukraine. And it's hard to see right now why he should, considering that Ukraine is ahead on the battlefield and Russia, you know, has of its own volition retreated. But what's really interesting right now is in Washington, there seems to be some disagreement within the U.S. administration over how much to encourage or prod uh, Ukraine to get involved in peace talks. We saw General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who publicly made a case. He made a speech in New York um, in which he, you know, drew comparisons to World War One when both sides were entrenched and, you know, so many lives were lost sort of pointlessly when there was no real change in the territorial gains and was essentially saying this is a good time <clears throat> while Ukraine is ahead um, to try to 
you know, solidify some of their gains through negotiation. At the same time, we know that the Biden administration, particularly National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, seems to be against pushing Ukraine towards the negotiating table. And President Biden himself has said publicly, this is going to be up to Ukraine. We're not going to push them. They're going to have to be the ones who decide when they negotiate. Remember, though, the pressure was on for negotiations when it looked like there was going to be a Republican sweep of the House of Representatives and possibly even the Senate, because Republicans, particularly in the House, have shown some wish and desire to pull back U.S. support for Ukraine. Uh, Now that it really wasn't the red wave that many people were expecting, that's probably less of an urgent concern. Uh, Indira mentioned a moment ago the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, spoke about the extreme losses from the war at the Economic Club of New York earlier this week. Milley estimates more than 100,000 Russian troops have been wounded or killed in the war and says Ukrainian troops have suffered similar casualties. So, Idris, I'm wondering, what do we know about how deadly this conflict has been over the past nine months? And why is it getting accurate numbers here so difficult? Yeah, so I mean, this the comments made by General Milley were the highest estimates uh, a U.S. official has given since the start of the war. The previous estimates were about 80,000 Russians killed or, or injured. Um, so this was sort of an eye-popping number. Um, and, and, and as you said, one of the starker things was not just the Russians who had been killed, but the Ukrainians, and in relative terms, right, the Ukrainian military is so much smaller, so they're going to be feeling the effects as well. With that being said, the United States has no troops on the ground in Ukraine. And so for them to be able to estimate how many Russians have been killed or injured, how many Ukrainians have been killed or injured, is really, frankly, um, somewhat of a guessing game. Um, When U.S. troops were in Afghanistan, they had a very imperfect picture, and that was with, you know, tens of thousands of troops and CIA officers on the ground. When that doesn't exist, you can see things from satellites, you can, you know, tap phones and get signal intelligence, but it becomes really tough to have an accurate and fair figure, which is why when we privately talk to US officials, I think they also acknowledge that the numbers are very rough estimates. And, you know, it's one of those things that are probably not going to be perfect for, for, or our knowledge of it, it's not going to be perfect for decades um, until this, this war is done. Millie also spoke on CNBC yesterday about the role of the U.S. in the conflict and its geopolitical ramifications. Here's what he said. Ukraine is fighting for their survival. It's an existential fight for Ukraine. Uh, but it's also important for us, for the United States, for, for Europe, because it's all about the so-called rules-based order, which was put in place at the end of World War II to prevent great power wars. Uh, and those rules have held, held firm now for going on eight decades. If those rules, which are being undermined by this war, if those rules go away, if they're destroyed, uh, then there'll be an incredible amount of pressure for increased instability, increased wars around the world. Indira, briefly, how do we expect U.S. involvement in the war to evolve as we enter these winter months we've been talking about and that global stability is further threatened? I think that um, the position of Kevin McCarthy in the House where he said, you know, we're not going to give a blank check to Ukraine um, has been weakened since he didn't have the overwhelming win that he was expecting. Mitch McConnell in the Senate is still supportive of Ukraine. So I don't think we're going to see American support 
for Ukraine, or for that matter, European support for Ukraine falling back across the ideological spectrum, um, you know, for the most part in Europe, despite the, the cost that Europeans are paying with, uh, you know, higher gas prices, etc., um, I would say support for Ukraine is still quite solid. So I think we're going to see the West supporting Ukraine, although there certainly may be quiet calls for them to engage in diplomacy to try to, you know, ultimately, how is this war going to end? Mm -hmm. One would think ultimately it has to be done in a diplomatic way. Let's continue with some news out of Russia. This week, the U.S. and Russia agreed to hold talks on the single nuclear treaty that exists between the two countries. Idris, the New START treaty was set to expire in February 2021. It was then extended for five more years. Russia has expressed a willingness to extend it further. Why is that significant? Yes, I mean, the past couple of weeks have really shown the importance of, of having some sort of restraint on nuclear weapons. And, and New START really was an ability for Russia and the United States, you know, the two largest um, countries with the largest nuclear arsenals, um, to keep an eye on each other, to, to sort of build some level of trust and, and verify what they were and weren't doing, because the New START treaty really caps a number of uh, warheads that each country can deploy. Um, and these um, sort of inspection stops. Uh, in March 2020 because of COVID and then the war in Ukraine happened and, and they never really took off. So it's important in, in, in the sense that it can really um, create trust um, on the nuclear front. But more broadly speaking, it's a sign, I think, for many people in Washington that despite the tensions over Ukraine, the two countries are at least talking. It's something we haven't seen much of since February. And so I think it's giving a, a lot of people hope that we're potentially past um, the worst of relations between the two countries. Um, Moscow, however, has said that while they will talk about New Start and, and some of the inspections, they aren't very optimistic um, about the outcome when the two countries meet um, in early December in Cairo to talk about these things. Tia sent in this question, what happens to U.S. support for Ukraine if the GOP gets control of Congress? And, you know, Indira, that ties in with something I wanted to ask you, which is kind of where things stand overall when it comes to the diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and Russia. Sure. Um, I mean, there's no question that it's the lowest point in U.S.-Russian relations in the last 60 years, let's say, since the Cold War. Um, it's not just that the war in Ukraine is happening. There's been a steady deterioration deterioration of relations um, with Russia over the last decade at least. And of course, don't forget the incredibly high profile political prisoners that Russia has right now, Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, um, who's been sentenced to nine and a half years over having less than a gram of cannabis oil in two vape cartridges, um, who's now been being sent to a Russian penal colony, um, which is essentially a modern-day equivalent of the Russian gulag with terrible conditions. Um, and, you know, I think that that is a case where there's not been any progress in trying to negotiate a release, even though the U.S. has offered Victor Boot um, a convicted arms trafficker from Russia. Um, they have not yet been able to come up with a deal on a prisoner exchange. So there are a lot of problems in the relationship right now. And just to quickly follow up, Indira, I mean, what does a possible GOP takeover of Congress mean for the U.S. role in this conflict, conflict and right. its support for Ukraine? 
Right. As I had said earlier, Kevin McCarthy is certainly leading a wing of the GOP in the House who wants to backpedal on support for Ukraine. I don't think that's going to be very successful, honestly, because <clears throat> on the Senate side, um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate, um, you know, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, um, still has been steadfast in his support for Ukraine. I think it's going to be, I think, you know, polling shows that the U.S. public is also supportive of continuing to give um, military aid and humanitarian aid to Ukraine um, in the fight against Russia. It's seen as an unprovoked war that Ukraine didn't take on, an invasion of their territory. Even the progressive Democrats who had written a letter calling for negotiations then retracted the letter after there was backlash from it. So I don't think that a GOP takeover in the end would really mean that much of a rollback for U.S. support. I think the Biden administration would be able to keep it going. And remember, there's a ton of support they're giving right now already that's, mm -hmm. you know, on the way. Right. Anne-Marie, I want to go back to something Indira mentioned a moment ago. Uh, WNBA star Brittany Griner, of course, has been transferred to this Russian forced labor camp. What are these Russian penal colonies and what will the environment be like for Griner there? Well, the really big question is where exactly even is this penal colony? We don't know because of how Russian regulations work where exactly this location is. The authorities will only disclose where Brittany Griner, Griner is once she arrives at the prison. And that notification can take up to two weeks to be received. And this is the information her, her lawyers have been saying. Um, obviously, you can imagine she is being held in a penal colony. This is going to be uh, very discouraging uh, I have not seen it myself, obviously, but very discouraging and worrisome uh, surroundings for her and how she may be treated. Uh, but Biden said this week he is determined to get her home. But as Indira is saying, uh, there's a lot going into this right now. And the last the negotiations were, we were told about in August, uh, the administration said there's really just no movement at the moment uh, when Biden had met with families of not just Griner, but also um, Paul Whelan. So right now, little sign that these talks are leading to an agreement, which is incredibly worrisome as she's being um, moved to this penal colony that, again, yet we still don't even know the location of. And what, if anything, might Russia be signaling Anne-Marie by moving her? Well, they are probably using her as leverage, right? Uh, Putin has used his commodities as leverage. He's using people as leverage. And what we know that Russia really wants, for sure, in a swap, is Victor Bout. He's this arms dealer. He's known as the merchant of death. And he has been, for years, a target of the, of the Kremlin. They want to get him back. So I imagine... How, however these negotiations are going, they want to make sure that he is the individual that would be coming back to Russia. But the United States also wants to make sure that it's not just Brittany Griner, that they're also acting on behalf of Mr. Whelan. Let's move on now to Egypt, which is hosting this year's Global Climate Summit in the Red Sea resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. COP27 is a week or so down, a week to go. But in opening remarks, the United Nations Secretary General issued a stark warning. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. 
greenhouse gas emissions keep growing, global temperatures keep rising, and our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Some very strong words there. Anne-Marie, I'm going to go back to you. There's a big push for solutions at this year's summit. What kinds of expectations are there for a pact between the world's developed and emerging nations to find some solutions and try to ward off the catastrophe he was just talking about? Well, my colleagues at Sharm el-Sheikh are calling it, quote, show me the money. This entire cop is about the developing world saying, the developed world, you guaranteed us tens of billions of dollars so we can move and transition because clearly we can't. But I have to say this COP is coming at a really difficult time for all nations that are dealing with high inflation, high energy prices. You have the President of the United States asking the oil industry to produce more. At the same time, they are saying, we don't want your assets, though, down the line. We are trying to be a more climate-friendly, renewable country. Uh, There's one plan that Envoy uh, John Kerry brought, and this was to expand the sale of carbon credits. The hope would be that this boosts renewable projects in the developing countries. It brings in a lot of corporations. But there's a lot of individuals that criticize this. They say that this kind of system failed decades ago and it would already be that corporate money would be going into these green projects, but how do we know, and it's unlikely, these critics say, that it would actually end up reducing greenhouse gases unless it's backed by major restrictions. So there's a lot of work to be involved between the private sector and, of course, the governments. But I think the big takeaway is that it comes at an incredibly difficult time because it's also hard for developed nations that are trying to shore up their own energy security right now to then be able to really shelve out a lot of money for developing countries. Yeah, you mentioned, Anne-Marie, those carbon credits that uh, John Kerry's proposed. Quickly, what are those? How would they work? So so they're carbon credits that would go to uh, companies and Basically, what happens is they get these carbon credits. They can offset them for some of their other work they do within the fossil fuel world. Um, And it's a way to try to boost money. Trillions of dollars is what they want to do in the private sector to try to fight climate change. Um, It's basically bringing climate change into like a market-based economy. But again, critics really worry that if you end up rewarding companies with these kind of credits – um, and they pay back for these projects, that the problem that critics have is that you they don't know that the greenhouse gases are actually not going to be going into the atmosphere. I mean, as I recall from covering agriculture many years ago, and this is an idea that's been around for a long time, but oh, hasn't yes, really taken off for decades. Exactly. It's been, it's been around for decades, which is why it's getting a ton of criticism. People are saying, we've tried this. It hasn't worked in the past. These companies, they claim these carbon credits. They invest in developing world. Uh, but how do we know that it actually means that it's going to decarbonize the world, that there will not be these emissions? So I feel like for uh, Mr. Kerry, he acknowledges and he did this at COP27 that in the past there should have been better safeguards and that there needs to be 
cracks that were in the system or bigger holes in the system that they want to be able to fill. But he said we shouldn't let the mistakes of the past keep us from employing a powerful tool for steering private capital where it's most needed. So his big goal is to get these private companies, tens of trillions of dollars, into the developing world. Because remember, the developing world is asking the developed world to, quote, show me the money at this COP27. This week's event was attended by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and President Biden, but reports came out this week that it's also being attended by more than 600 representatives of the fossil fuel industry. So, Indira, what is the purpose of their presence at this event, and how do you see that presence affecting any sort of agreement or framework that might come out of the meeting? Well, it's tricky. I mean, it's it's no wonder that um, big corporate leaders are there at the meeting because they want to, first of all, have an influence on the outcome. On the one hand, you could say in the best case scenario, they're trying to see how they can be responsible corporate citizens and contribute to the solutions for climate change. A more cynical way of looking at it would be they're there to put their thumbs on the scale and make sure that there aren't any agreements that are, you know, not in their favor. Um, It's complicated. And by the way, protesters have also been noticeably absent from this year's summit in Sharm, as opposed to COP26 last year in Glasgow, where protesters were everywhere. There were tens of thousands of them. And this time there are none. Um, You know, there's been much more security. It's been much more complicated at this summit. As you quoted Gutierrez saying we're on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator, he hasn't minced any words saying we're in the fight of our lives and we're losing. But I think we should keep our eye on who are the biggest losers here because there's incredible inequity in how climate change is affecting the world and it's the poorest nations that are suffering the most. And that's a really significant problem here. The the developed world has promised that it was going to mobilize $100 billion a year in climate finance for poorer nations. Part of the reason that U.S. climate envoy John Kerry's um, proposal um, was sort of scoffed at was because it's seen as too little, too late, voluntary, um, not mandatory. So there, there are a lot of problems at this climate summit that are not really being addressed, not to mention, um, you know, the fact that the head of the World Bank, according to Al Gore, is a climate denier. So there's the whole question of whether the World Bank and the IMF are part of the problem themselves. And, you know, that, I think, is, is a real problem for the leaders to address, not to mention when you were talking about who's there, well, let's talk about who's not there. Vladimir Putin is not there, China is not there, and India is not there. And China and India, along with the U.S., um, you know, China, along with the U.S., is the second biggest um, emitter of fossil fuels and carbon. So there are some real gaps in leadership um, at this summit. Well, and there's been criticism of the summit being held in Egypt, given its human rights record. It's cracked down on dissidents since President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi seized power in 2014. The most famous jailed activist, Allah Abdul Fattah, has been on a partial hunger strike for more than 200 days now. And this week, he refused water. Idris, what else can you tell us about this case? It's very interesting um, to see such a major conference being held, you know, in this sort of resort town and on the other side of the country. You know, we're talking about dozens, potentially hundreds of dissidents and political prisoners um, in jail. Um, Al-Abd al-Fatah was 
you know, sort of this is this prolific blogger um, who came to rise um, during Egypt's 2011 revolution um, was very popular, but sort of got caught up in the um, far-reaching crackdown that President um, Sisi carried out in 2013. Um, he's basically been um, sentenced a m- number of times, most recently in December 2021, um, for spreading false news. Um, the interesting thing is he gained British nationality through his mother while he was in jail. And so there's um, a lot more interest, not just in Egypt, but in the West as well, um, about how his case is going to be resolved. Um, President Biden um, was just meeting with President Sisi and the White House um, provided a readout of that in which they said President Biden did raise human rights issues because it's not just his case. It's something that's been going on for a long, long time within the United States and within Congress. You've seen lawmakers calling for the United States to reduce or even stop the amount of weapons it gives um, Egypt until it sort of deals with its human rights issues. Um, so the case of Abdel Fattah is sort of front and center, but it's just emblematic of some of the broader issues um, when it comes to human rights that are going on in Egypt. We'll go next to Europe and the migrant crisis that's pitting several governments against each other. Italy's new prime minister said she would crack down on those trying to enter the country by sea from North Africa. And this week, that led to a huge row that caused France to suspend a plan to take in thousands of refugees after Italy refused to let a migrant rescue ship disembark on its shores. The French interior minister lashed out and called Italy's behavior unacceptable. Indira, we've talked about Italy's new prime minister, Giorgia Maloney, and the fact that her harder line on immigration was one of the reasons she got elected. How is her response to this situation being received? Well, certainly by those in her party, those who voted for her, it's being received well. And one of the sort of, uh, I don't know if I would call it a subtlety, but one aspect of her reaction is that she has allowed women and children off these boats, but has kept um, men on and refused to let them disembark. So there's one case where 144 migrants left a ship, but 35 men from Egypt, Pakistan, and Bangladesh stayed on. Um, the Italian authorities ordered the captain to take them back to international waters, and the captain refused. And so there's now this team of lawyers who are drafting asylum applications. Uh, essentially, she has taken the position that adult male migrants, particularly from countries, uh, let's face it, Muslim countries in this case, um, that they are terrorist threats and you know threats to the country. And this has gone down very well with her base. But legal experts have said that governments don't get to choose who gets off ships, that national and international laws and norms say that authorities can't determine who's vulnerable just based on a medical examination or the age or gender of the person, and that in fact everyone has to be given a fair shot at asylum. We don't know what kind of, you know, torture or um, persecution these people might be facing at home. But You know, this whole central Mediterranean crossing is incredibly dangerous. And in this one route, um, more than 1,300 people have died this year alone in the crossing. So she has come under, the Italian new prime minister has come under fire from most of Europe, with the exception of Viktor Orban in um, you know, in Hungary, who has had this position for a long time and who has been cheering her on. 
And Anne-Marie, Italy is one of the main entry points into Europe. And since the start of the year, 85,000 migrants migrants have arrived on boats, according to the UN. How willing is the rest of Europe to help respond to the crisis? Well, they're supposed to help together take on uh, the the people that are coming to their shores. And that's why this is sparking an even bigger spat because uh, Italy is basically saying that France also needs to take on more. France is saying uh, they're suspending basically this plan of more than 3,000 uh, that are currently in Italy that they were going to bring in because they have this gr- accord of burden sharing. And it's very difficult in Europe. And I used to live in London and used to really report all around the continent. Um, and we see this spike every once in a while when there is uh, a pressure on the system. Because even in the United Kingdom, a story I reported about an Afghan family that uh, me and my colleagues at Bloomberg helped evacuate and we got them to safety asylum in uh, Greece. I was looking at the numbers around Europe and just for those Afghans that were fleeing the fall of Kabul last year, 10,000 were still being housed in hotels across the United Kingdom. So they still haven't been able to come to grips with refugees over the past year or two, let alone the new migrants that are coming in. And you can see how this is having huge issues within the countries of who should be taking in more of the burden of fresh uh, asylum seekers or migrants. Now, the migrant crisis is not solely confined to those crossing the Mediterranean. Thousands also are crossing the English Channel now. Many are from other parts of Europe, and they're using small boats to navigate one of the world's busiest shipping routes, which is causing a big headache for the U.K. government. Here's the British Cabinet Minister Chris Philp speaking to LBC Radio. This year, it's been so far 40,000 people, roughly, crossing the English Channel dangerously and illegally on these small boats. And of course, not only are those channel crossings illegal, they're also totally unnecessary because uh, France is a safe, civilised country with a well-functioning asylum system. No one needs to leave France to flee persecution, obviously. So these journeys don't need to happen. And it's put the system under enormous amounts of pressure. Idris, why is the UK government struggling to cope with the numbers crossing the channel? And to what extent has Brexit narrowed its options for managing the issue? Yeah, so I mean, we're basically seeing record number of migrants crossing um, into Britain and usually in, in, in small boats. And that's put, you know, a, a decent amount of pressure on the British government, which, you know, given the past few weeks um, is very sort of new. They're feeling out their positions. And just given the political situation, I think the new prime minister is sort of trying to tread lightly um, on the issue. In terms of the pressure, I mean, I, you know, I think it's something that comes up every couple of years, not just in Britain, but like we were talking about in Italy. Um, and, and what the Prime Minister Sunak has basically done is he met with um, French Prime Minister Macron while they were in Egypt, actually, and they're sort of looking to reset ties and looking at ways that they can basically tackle illegal migration together because really, you know, for Britain, it can do all it wants in terms of policies, um, even after Brexit. But if migrants are continuing to come from places like France, it, it, it won't really make 
much of a difference. So I think we're in a position now, at least the British government says it's in a position now where it's trying to deal with um, sort of the, the root cause of the issue um, while also trying to strengthen their policies. And, you know, it's one of those things, um, one of the unintended consequences of Brexit um, that we're seeing play out so far. And, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things that in the coming months as winter approaches, um, it's going to be tougher to deal with. The FIFA World Cup is set to start in just under 10 days in Doha, Qatar. And while all over the world fans of football, or soccer as we say here in the U.S., are gearing up for that event, there is a lot of controversy. New stadiums are being built around the tiny emirate, but rights groups say the laborers building those venues have faced several human rights violations. Qatar is also not known to be friendly to the LGBTQ plus community. This week, comments by Qatar's World Cup ambassador to the German public broadcaster, ZD, caused an uproar. That's haram. You know haram what's mean? Yes, haram. Yeah, 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 it's haram. So he will say for me, why are you drink it? But do you think gay is haram? It's haram. Because why is haram? I am not big, one big Muslim, but it's haram, why? Because they're damaging the mind. So those comments came just days after Qatar's foreign minister insisted that all people would be welcome to attend the World Cup in his country, including members of the LGBTQ community. Indira, what impact did those comments and comments like it have just days out from one of the biggest sporting events in the world? Well, it's very damaging to refer to any group as damage in the mind, that quote that you played. I mean, let's not forget homosexuality is illegal in Qatar and same-sex relationships there can be punishable by the death sentence. So this is something that has been known ever since Qatar was chosen as a locale for the World Cup and it was one of the reasons why it was controversial to begin with. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of contradiction here because there are, um, you know, some leaders, certainly from the UK government, who are saying, well, um, Qatar is not safe for LGBT plus fans who might be wanting to come. Um, Qatar is realizing damage control mode here, that this is a huge problem. They've said, no, all fans are going to be welcome without discrimination. But, you know, there's no question that the UK, which has a lot of soccer fans who are planning to go, um, is right to warn people about discrimination and potential, you know, I I wouldn't want to say official crackdowns, but any kind of discrimination that could be um, done against LGBTQ plus people. So it's a very, very bad look for Qatar. And it's just one of the human rights issues that made it an unpopular or at least controversial choice for hosting the World Cup. Idris, how do you think this World Cup and the way it's played out will change the way tournaments are awarded to countries in the future? Or will it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point, because when this was awarded to Qatar, there were massive questions about corruption, whether it was deserved. Um, there's been a broader push by FIFA in, in the past decade or so to broaden uh, an already very popular game beyond Europe. And one obvious you know, location was the Middle East. And, and you know, at the time um, it made sense, but then there have been investigations done in there on the issue. Um, corruption has come up. And, you know, I think a lot of people have questioned the way 
um, these sort of uh, tournaments are awarded because they're a huge financial gain for the country that gets them. Um, what we haven't seen is any reform in terms of how they're going to be awarded in the future um, to take into account issues like human right records of the country. Um, you know, the, the simpler issue is the weather, for example. So they had to move the tournament from the summer to the winter. And so there are a lot of logistics that go into it as well. Um, and, and, you know, again, a lot of questions have been raised about the awarding, but not much has been done in in, in terms of changing how that goes forward. Mm-hmm. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. You're listening to 1A. We've been talking with Idris Ali of Reuters, Indira Lakshmanan, most recently with National Geographic, and Anne-Marie Hordern with Bloomberg News. Indira, on Thursday, family members and colleagues of slain Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla met with UN investigators and said they believe she's been deliberately targeted as part of what they describe as Israel's wide-scale war on Palestinian media workers. She was killed six months ago today. What is the status of that investigation? Right. Well, there's been this joint investigation by this London-based multidisciplinary research group and a Palestinian rights group that has uncovered further evidence that, um, that in fact, the, the killing of this veteran Al Jazeera journalist um, was intentional. And, uh, you know, just to remind our listeners, she, um, Abu Akleh, was with Al Jazeera for 25 years. She was known as the Voice of Palestine. She was shot in the head and killed by Israeli forces on May 11th when she was covering an army raid in, um, in the West Bank. So there's been this probe that has looked at the precise angle of fire of the Israeli sniper. And if you recall, back in September, the Israeli Defense Forces admitted that there is a high possibility that she was shot and killed by Israeli fire. Um, but they did not intend to pursue criminal charges or prosecutions of any of the soldiers involved. So now with more evidence mounting that in fact her killing was not just um, you know, done by an Israeli soldier, but was actually intentional. Um, her family has formally submitted a complaint with the International Criminal Court demanding justice for her killing. I'm not sure what would actually come from this, but it certainly puts pressure on the international community. We'll remember, of course, that her family was meeting with top U.S. officials at the White House. So they've tried to keep the attention on the case. In the coming days, President Biden will travel to three major international summits days after his stronger than expected showing in the midterms. Today, he's at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh that we've been talking about, then to an economic meeting in Cambodia, and then on to Bali, Indonesia for the G20. That's where President Biden will hold his first face-to-face meeting of his presidency with China's Xi Jinping. Anne-Marie, you're traveling to Bali. What can we expect to come from the G20 meetings? Well, it'll really be about this meeting that happens before the G20. So the meeting before the meeting, this is what everyone's going to be watching, highly anticipated. But there are no deliverables, as far as we know, what officials have said to us regarding this meeting. And it's really just, as you as officials described, a meeting to understand Beijing and Washington's intentions. And the U.S. has, since 2021, have been trying to map out rules of the road to engaging with China. We do know that that Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden will be discussing things, though, like Putin's invasions of in Ukraine, what's going on in North Korea, climate, 
And for Beijing, what's critically important is these uh, sanctions or the, the scope of the access Beijing is now uh, not going to be able to get in terms of curbs for U.S. technology when it comes to semiconductor chips. And then, of course, the big one is going to be about Taiwan. But we don't expect a joint readout. So we're going to have to really do our work as journalists to figure out what went on behind the scenes because uh, there's going to be no deliverables, no joint readout. So it was a very, very low bar. We have just enough time left to thank our guests, Anne-Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg News, Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters, who covers the Pentagon, and Indira Lakshmanan, former senior executive editor at National Geographic. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us today for this week's edition of the Friday News Roundup. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.